From KRCC in Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters. Today, the story of Thomas James. A year ago, he knocked down the Club Q shooter, but hasn't talked much about it publicly until now. I did what I had to do because it was the right thing. And every accolade that came after was something I could do without. I'd trade every award for that night to never happen. And later, the journey that brought Yemi Mobilati to America and to the mayor's office. I have the wonderful privilege of living my life with these two worldviews. I'm more American than anything else, but I can't get away from my, my roots that has been shaped by a different part of the world being West African. And I carry those two lenses into almost everything I do, every decision, every leadership. Hi, I'm Marty Jewell, and I've been donating stock annually for quite a few years now because my financial advisor told me that it was easier on my taxes to do that rather than giving cash outright. It feels good to donate because I feel like I am helping not only CPR, but others who listen and enjoy the programming just as much as I do. Learn how to donate stock at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from KRCC and CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs. It's been almost a year since five people were killed, another 17 hurt, in an attack on an LGBTQ club here. Survivor Thomas James has mostly chosen to stay out of the limelight since the shooting at Club Q until now. Today, James recounts his decision to stop the shooter and explains his reaction to being called a hero. The story includes graphic descriptions of gun violence and its effects. Hello, my name is Thomas James. I was the one who first uh, took down the shooter. Most people don't really know about me because I uh, chose my seclusion over anything else. I was uh, at the club that night in the smoking section, a uh, small patio in the back of the club talking with a friend of mine. And at first, when I heard the gunshots, I thought it was simply a part of the beat. And then the screaming started. And I looked my friends in the eyes and um, we started trying to move. I initially went to open the shutter. Uh, There was a shutter cutting off a part of it that we could try and get a way through. It would take us uh, deeper into the patio, um, but I believe there was a door that um, led out for uh, fire exits, if I can recall right. But I had no clue how to open it, so rather than fiddle with that further, I uh, chose to uh, confront the shooter and was able to uh, pin them down for roughly 90 seconds. There was a lot of screaming. Um, The dance floor itself had cleared out at that point. It was a lot of, most of it was tunnel vision, charging in, then getting shot, and then uh, proceeding to wrestle them down, and then fighting further. At uh, one point, it felt just like a really bad dream, just because the club lights were still going and the music was still going, and I was bleeding, and the assailant was bleeding. And if I had to say, I feel like it was all instinct. Um, when I uh, went in there, 
there was no real plan. I mean, there was obvious stuff. Get the gun away from them, swing as hard as I can, spy my friends um, some time. was really the only thing that just kept playing on my head in a loop. The weirdest thing, I guess, I think about that night is a, a pair of glasses that I had lost. So I was being pulled off of the assailant. I guess the panic and all that, just the shock of it all made me think about the most inconsequential stuff at that time. But uh, the police reaction, um, finding, like, I guess someone more trained was a, was a relief. I feel like uh, some people have put me on a pedestal that I've really tried to avoid throughout all of this. Calling me hero is a little off-putting for me. Some people have gotten the message to like let me sort things out as I go. Other people not so much, but I, uh, I've been trying to take it as it comes. And uh, for the most part, I just want to try and remind people I'm the same as them. Just waking up in the morning, trying to get out and work, you know. It's no secret I am in the military. I guess when um, I look at how active service members are treated sometimes, where it's just a passing, like, thank you for your service and all of that, um, until, like, uh, the bill is due and we have uh, veterans that need help and service members come back suffering PTSD symptoms and everything, we're experiencing that. And when it's time to really support the troops, there's not so much support there. So when I think about the phrase hero, I think of it from that perspective. It's easy to call someone a hero. It's harder to support the hero when you find out they aren't necessarily heroic. I've never been big on like labeling myself just one thing. So sailor, part of the LGBTQ plus community, BIPOC, just all these different labels. I never really liked having just one of those. I believe people have layers, multitudes, so. As a way to help with the grief, I took up painting. My uh, therapist recommended it, and um, I don't really like portraiture. I do more um, abstractions and, um, I guess, feelings and thoughts. I painted uh, five spirits in uh, black with uh, five hearts. The eyes kind of swiped with a stroke of white over them just to kind of symbolize the souls lost. Um, I donated it to a friend of mine, so I'm hoping to paint another, and then um, I'll keep that for myself. I feel like in some parts, it's hard for me to figure out who to trust nowadays. Um, as I mentioned, the hero talk and the parading around, it feels like some people reached out only when I was finally ready to talk kind of dictate my narrative. When I was on convalescently for a month and a half, I had one friend come by on the regular, and even still, I was mostly drunk. Not many other calls, not many other uh, visits. They all kind of scattered. My leadership was there, basically my rock, one of my sergeants, uh, more than anything. He was the first person I called when I was shot. But uh, this made me sit back and kind of think about who I let into my life. I've noticed this kind of schism in the community right now. On one side, you have survivors feeling they haven't been properly supported 
between the Colorado Healing Fund, the center, I guess at Colfax, and I guess, you know, sister, brother communities out in the state. And then you have the club owners who we feel have been uh, neglecting survivors and looking to profit off of that. And at one point, I had um, picked the side of the survivors and then I felt like I was just widening that schism. But I can't in good conscience side with a company that I feel is trying to profiteer off of death. So I've kind of absolved myself and am hoping to find a third option in time. I was shot in the chest, thankfully. Uh, it ricocheted off of a rib that led to a uh, collapsed lung. And two years prior, I had broken my foot, and the events of that night kind of exacerbated it. Spent a week in the hospital. While my ankle has improved considerably, there's no guarantee that it won't flare up again, the gunshot wound, and then just overall, the uh, symptoms of the PTSD of that night have put me in a rough position to continue my work. I was gonna do uh, my last deployment on a ship after here, and then um, just settle in but uh, this really changed my whole perspective on what I want to do next. I've realized how short life can get, and I have to start making moves now to find what I really, really want. Uh, I've thought about getting my CDL to uh, do uh, trucking locally. I've always enjoyed driving, so um, that would be a nice change of pace. If I somehow managed to make a profession of art, that would be, I guess, uh, the best. I did what I had to do because it was the right thing. And every accolade that came after was something I could do without. I'd trade every award for that night to never happen. But uh, fortunately, it's not a thing I can do. Thomas James, who survived the Club Q shooting last year, he's one of three people credited with saving lives by disarming the attacker. This profile was produced by KRCC's Abigail Beckman. James is one of four people we'll feature as a year approaches November 19th. You can read all four stories now at krcc.org. And our program from Colorado Springs continues after a break. Meet the man behind the mayor. How Yemi Mobilati's childhood in Nigeria shaped his vision for our state's second largest city. This is Colorado Matters from KRCC and CPR News. I'm Jessica Duran. As a news intern for KRCC, I was able to report on stories and help inform Southern Colorado. CPR and KRCC offer opportunities like these and more to current students and recent graduates to set up the next generation for success. You can learn more about internships and fellowships at CPR.org jobs. Yemi Mobilade surprised the state and the country when he was elected mayor of Colorado Springs earlier this year. He's the first non-Republican to win the office. He's also an immigrant and the first black person elected mayor here. 
Our producer, Rachel Estabrook, brings us her interview with him today. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. When did you talk to the mayor? I went to his office in the middle of September. So this was soon after his first State of the City address. And he had made a very personal comment in that speech that I wanted to ask him about. Well, let's hear your conversation. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for being here and for having me. You let out a personal detail a few weeks ago in an address that you gave to the city. and Were you there? Uh, no, I watched it on video. <laughs> um, so people do watch those things. There you go. <laughs> I want to get to that revelation. Um, and it starts in your childhood. And, and so I'm going to start back at the beginning. Okay. You grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. Yep. What was it like? When you think back on that time, what do you remember? I don't have a ton of childhood memories. And some psychologists would say that it's, it's connected to childhood trauma. So maybe I am, I am a product of trauma like most of us. Um, but I grew up in the Yoruba culture, which is one of the three major languages in Nigeria. You're nodding your head, so it sounds like you, mm-hmm. you're, you're very aware. I grew up in a community that is, um, that's very community and family-centric. It's um, communal instead of um, individualistic. My wife and I were in South Bend, Indiana this past weekend okay. to watch the um, Notre Dame fighting Irish football game. The Ohio State game. Yes, we were there. My wife is from that community. I immigrated to the U.S. to South Bend, Indiana. And people, I ran into a couple of friends and people would often ask, how did you choose to come to college in, in the U.S.? I'm like, I didn't choose. Hmm. My parents helped me choose that. Decisions were made in the context of family, not just your own. So that's how we ended up in the U.S. But that just gives you an idea of the world I grew up in. Yet I was this young child that was fighting for individuality, for independence. And I was a kid that would always ask the why. And I see that, see that in my six-year-old daughter. It's fascinating. She's very much always curious, wants to know why. She's not satisfied with the way things are. Even in the um, campaign, she was wondering why there was only one woman. Huh. Uh, as a five-year-old, she is, it, it troubled her, where, where are the women? It's all men. I'm like, at least you're going to support your dad, aren't you? <laughs> and, uh, and, and easy out on uh, yeah, and the, and, the, and the one woman, Sally, that ran against me now works yes. with me, which is really cool. I bring up my daughter because that's who I was as a kid. But in the culture I grew up in, that was not welcomed. So Curiosity. It wasn't welcome. Yeah. Really? Um, it's very much of a, it was an adult world. And even so, a man's world. Hmm. And I remember asking the questions as a young kid, like my daughter did. And so I got in trouble a lot because I challenged the, the status quo. But those are some of the more painful memories. The more joyful memories are growing up with family. Hmm. Not just my siblings, cousins and uncles and aunts and grandma. It was, you were literally raised by a village. Your neighbors were pseudo-parents to, to you, and you could get in trouble with your friend's parents because they, they were like parents. So that gives you a little bit of uh, my early upbringing. Okay, and you're speaking of your nuclear family. Your mom was a high school teacher, right? Yeah, we call it secondary education, senior secondary and junior secondary. That's and so she was a secondary ed teacher and taught biology and some of the sciences. 
for a season. Okay. And then, um, not your my, whole childhood. Yeah, not my whole childhood. And then my dad started to dabble in entrepreneurship, and then she started to help out with that. Oh, because he worked at ExxonMobil, right? Yeah, then it was just mobile. He okay. actually transitioned out when that merger happened. I was going to ask how your father working for a multinational U.S. company affected your growing up. A couple of things. One, it meant that he was always gone. He was busy working, so didn't grow up with with dad being around, and and that was just normal too in the culture. That's a whole story because my dad and I butted heads. That was part of my painful childhood um, stories as well. But the positive side of that opportunity for him was it truly changed the trajectory of our lives and his family. And when I say his family, I mean his siblings because his dad died when he was 13 years old. My parents both grew up in a in polygamous homes, which is very normal at the time. Hmm. And so uh, that's like something out of the Old Testament when my dad tells his story. Because my my grandma, my dad's mom, was the youngest of the wives. And it's so profound when I think about my er- origin and then where I'm at today in like two two generations. Oh, in just two generations. Yeah, it's... It, How much your family's life has changed. It's weird, and I marvel. Because my dad grew up in rural Nigeria. And then when his dad passed away, you got to imagine, he's he's 13 years old, five siblings in his side of the family with his mom. He's the first boy. He has an older sister, but so instantly he becomes... The provider. The provider. So he drops out of school to help provide for his family. After two years of not being in school, a couple of British teachers convinced his mom to put him back in school. End up having an opportunity to go to college. This is why I'm big on education. Finished college, had the opportunity to work in mobile. And that created an opportunity to not only improve our quality of life as kids, but all his siblings. He was able to send them to school as well. Wow. Yeah, he became, he, he truly became like the, the dad of, for even his siblings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and then you said he became an entrepreneur after that. Yeah, he became an entrepreneur. I said uh, he he got into education. He dabbled in transportation. He dabbled in in restaurant and that clothes. And both parents were also pastors. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a household of faith. In the world I grew up in, you were never a full time pastor. So you always had a job, and then you you pastored on the side. So yeah. right, religion obviously became a big part of your own story here in Colorado. Absolutely. So from a young age, were you religious because your family was religious or did you, do you remember feeling strongly about it at that time? Initially, I was religious and faith was important to me because that's what you grew up in. And I got to give my parents credit. I would say one of the things they did well was they made faith an uh, active part of our lives. It wasn't just that we were religious, we went to church which when I moved to the U.S., I couldn't figure out why a lot of my friends were just angry with the church. But the, the contrast was that the church kind of raised them. And my upbringing, we, went to, we did a lot of church activities, which I kind of fought growing up. But they also practiced generosity. You know, my parents were very generous. My parents were very open, and they were always helping people. So I saw faith in action. I, was, I would say that was more transformative. That was truly religion and faith in action. Like what's but, something they did? that was generous that you saw? Oh, gosh, you name it. Like, they're always using their means to help people. So when people needed 
when people were hurting and suffering, they would they would give generously of their own money. When the family members or even friends, kids, you know, needed a place to stay because you got to imagine it's, it's a more of a rural environment and a lot of transient people leaving the village come to the city and they would embrace those kids as their own and wouldn't even treat them differently than us. Um, so there were people constantly in and out of our home. Huh. Yeah, so, um, but when I came to the U.S., I kind of struggled with my faith. I almost walked away from all of it. But that season always also became what's transformative for me because I eventually, it clicked where I knew the best of faith was how we loved and treated others. And that reality is what fuels how not only I lead, but even how I do politics. I alluded to something you said in a city address a few weeks ago. This was in your State of the City address, your first one. You spoke publicly about challenges you had when you were 17. Right. Most people see my success story, but buried in that story is a 17-year-old kid who came into this country lost, lonely, and struggling. What made you want to share that at this moment? Oh, that's a good point. Um... I feel like um, to whom much is given, much is required. And I'm in a privileged position now to to help others. And it's easy for people to see successes and not realize that behind every story, there's a, there's a story of challenge and pain. And so mental health is really important to, to my wife, me. Uh, it's close to our household. We've experienced it in our household, my son deals with it. So it was a unique opportunity for me to be vulnerable and for for me to be relatable and for people to know that most of us are dealing with this. As a young kid in Nigeria, I had suicidal thoughts. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I wanted to run away. It transcends cultures too. But um, So I wanted people to know that there's there's hope. So hopefully someone someone heard that and felt hopeful that they're not alone to move us from isolation into community. That's a goal, isolation to community. And that's why I, I shared that. I have a platform, I have a bully pulpit, I have a megaphone, so I intend to use it for all the right reasons. Yeah, and I know your wife, Abby, is right. focused on mental health right now in your administration. Were you talking about that 17-year-old kid in Nigeria or here when you came Both. to Indiana? Both, it's how I came into the country and it's how my first two to three years in Indiana was. I was not a good student. I had poor grades. It wasn't until my junior year when everything began to change. You know, I was very quiet. I was shy. I didn't have friends. And uh, people look at me like, you're very friendly. Everyone wants to be around you. I'm like, well, that's, that's, that's not my story origins. I didn't know who I was. You developed that I developed. It was, it was my junior year when, it was my junior year when I realized I finally found the, the real Yemi. Hmm. And it's beca- and because there were, this is why I'm big on mentoring and even that neighborhood engagement and bringing people into community. The ability for people to see you and speak life and truth, that's what was given to me by some key people in my life at that, so early in my, in my story in the U.S., that made the difference for me. Yeah, I mean, even 20 years old is is young. I'm assuming it was about 20 years old. It seems young for someone to find themselves. So what do you attribute that to? Part of that is my wiring. Out of the four siblings in the family, 
they would also say too that I was asking those questions so early, and I was dealing with things so early that I was they didn't they were looking at me like I was so strange, and they didn't deal with that some of the stuff I was dealing with till the mid to late twenties. What kind of questions like what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life? You know, is there a God? You wow. know, challenge asking questions about the way we grew up. I challenged some of the some of the cultural norms around my upbringing. And my, I think for my siblings, it was they didn't want to go there because then your whole reality begins to feel like a lie. Whether your story is healthy or not, people hold on to it because there's a, there's an element of security there, and you start messing with that, and sometimes it's easy to feel like you're lost. And I went there early. Yeah, and I made my peace for certain things early. I, I, I just, I've always had a hunger and a drive, and I didn't even realize it at the time, even at age 17. Now in my 40s, when you have more miles ahead of you, as you know, you look back and you go, oh, I've always, these things have always been true of who I am. They just weren't nurtured. So I've read that you moved to Indiana because you had friends and family there? Yeah, we had family, right? Family, okay. Family friends. Got it. Who, who we call family. Culturally. Uh huh. Yeah. They, we call them uncle and aunt, even though they're not biological. There are people in the city, my kids call uncle and aunt. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. What stands out to you about your first memory of being in Indiana? I just remember making my way through campus and just taking it all in and being so lost and trying to make sense of all of it. I was excited to leave home, don't get me wrong. But I was in a different country, in a different world, so it was all new. Uh, what I remember most are the people that, and this was this was this was transformative, and has shaped how I I am today. But I remember the few people that took time to get to know this immigrant kid, Brandy Miller. She's now Brandy Kinston. Brandy will forever have a special place in my heart. Was she a student, a professor? She, she was a senior in college. Okay. Like her family knows, her family, her husband and kids, and she's got grown kids, they know if their mom needs me, I will show up. That's how much Brandy meant to me. So at a time in, in student life where you're having senioritis and you're kind of checking out, she was so plugged in and engaged. Hmm. And I remember her seeking me out out of everyone and she knew I was I was African and I had a very thick accent and most people at that time in the Midwest not knowing what to how to relate to me Brandy came and gave me friendship and asked tell me your story how do you say your name and she wanted to learn it in the actual way this lost and lonely and struggling kid it made me feel like a million million bucks I felt seen and I had those key moments. So it started with Brandy. Then it started with. Then it was a staff person. Then it was a professor. Then it was Vicky Garrett, who is in her seventies now. And Vicky was a, a artist in resident at the college at the time, who only had vocal majors. She's next level. I needed an extra credit. I was interested in joining a choir, so I signed up for voice lessons. She, she was shocked because normally only vocal majors. Uh, why I put myself through these scary experiences. <laughs> That's also been a part of my history. So Vicky said yes. Uh-huh. 
and uh, first practice with her in her studio. She's playing the piano. She literally stops the piano, looks at me, and says, Yemi, um, I think you're singing, but I don't know because there's nothing coming out of your mouth. <laughs> That's how timid I was. And But there were key moments in our, in our practice. Vicky would stop and look at me and say, I don't know. There's something special about you. You're going to do something great with your life. Hmm. When I decided to run, oh, I hadn't decided. I was in the process of running for, deciding to run for mayor. I went back to South Bend, Indiana. Okay. And met with the vice, the former vice president of, student, um, of the college and all these leaders that, including Vicky. I said, Vicky, as a sophomore, I need you to tell me what you saw in me. Because I was, I'm getting emotional now, I was on the fence. I knew what I'd, I was, I had an idea of what I'd be signing up for, and I, I wasn't sure I wanted it. And I said, Vicky, you need to tell me what you saw in this kid that was so unsure of himself. And she spoke the same truth to me. She said, you're already doing it. You have my support, whichever way you go. By the time I got back to Colorado Springs, she called me and said, I have a check waiting for you. <laughs> She was one of my first donors to my campaign. We all need Vickies. We all need Brandies. We all need Sean Holgren. We all need Dennis. This is why I shared that story. Because we can't be that to the next immigrant, the next refugee, the next young person that is unsure, that is feeling lost that is lonely, that is in isolation, that has had trauma from the childhood, that is having challenges with their dad. Now my relationship is a lot better with my dad, but at the time it wasn't, it wasn't good. Um, and I felt like, even when Vicky told me that, I, 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 I remember thinking in my head, there's no way you can say that, I'm, I'm at my worst. But I think it's okay to call out things in people that they don't see at the time. You thought you were at your worst when you were back in college. At yeah, I, was, I, I had poor grades. I had, you know, I, yeah, I <laughs> just like how, how would you, how would you even see or say that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So when you shared this story a few weeks ago, um, since then, have you heard from anybody in the city? Anybody who heard it who wanted to connect with you about that? The word that we keep hearing from everyone is inspired. Now inspiration has led to action. A thousand block parties in 2024 to move people Right, that's one of, of your goals, to create social connection. Yeah, deep human connection. Uh, move people from social isolation to community. And it's, it's so interesting to recognize the collective experience we all had in the pandemic and how that's really affected us. People don't talk about that all that no. openly. You know, people talk about it as an individual problem, but not a... It's a community problem. Yeah. And uh, it's, um, the Surgeon General has been in his new book. He's, he's, he's talking about that. I think the problem was there. 2020 really shined light on a cancer we've had as a, as a culture. The very things we love and technology is really also is hurting us. So the, you think our isolation started before COVID? Oh, gosh, yes. Part of that is the unintended consequences of what I even love about our culture. Part of the American way is the ability to pull yourself up, the ability to make your own way. You can do anything. 
the contrast even from a faith tradition, from the growing up in Nigerian faith tradition and coming to the U.S., the language became your personal relationship. It was so foreign to me, like personal relationship. That's that's not even. And so we do a lot of. We're the point I'm making is we're a nation of individuals mm-hmm. who are trying to who are trying to advance our society. That's good. The flip side of that is we're a nation of individuals, and so we're suffering as individuals. And I often say, too, that we, because in in our culture, too, for the most part, and this is certainly not across the board, but in contrast to many developing and third world countries, where because of the economic situation, you you need to depend on others. For For most of us, we don't have to depend on others. We get to buy our own isolation. I have the ability to buy everything I need, even mm. if I need secondhand or um, I wear secondhand jackets. So I, I can buy my own isolation is often what I said. So I don't need to go to my neighbor next door to ask for anything. And so I'm trying to push back that barrier. While we may not need, I'm saying let's choose each other because of the benefits, the benefits of our mental psyche. And it sounds like that... Outlook is absolutely informed by your upbringing. Completely. My upbringing, I I have the wonderful privilege of living my life with these two worldviews. I'm more American than anything else. I've lived in this country now for 27, 28 years, Um, and I'm I'm proud American, and I don't want to (laughs) leave. I do love this country, but I can't get away from my, my roots that has been shaped by uh, a different part of the world being West African. And I carry those two lenses into almost everything I do, every decision, every leadership. Um, so I can't get away from it. So it does it does affect how I view all of it. So um, the opportunity I see around neighborhood engagement comes from my own experience in my upbringing, but also me putting into practice when I was a pastor, we, we did the things that I'm trying to promote. Mm-hmm. And it was transformative. I kid you not. It was transformative. Can you give me an example? Oh, yeah. We encouraged the folks in our church to, you know, let's start hosting block parties. Let's get to know our neighbors. Let's have these. We had these little magnets in our fridges where your house was in the middle. And then the ability to write your neighbor's names were around it. So we were forcing people to get to know the neighbors. So that took some courage. Knocking on your neighbor's door and say, "Yeah, we we've lived next to each other for five years. I don't even know your name. I'm really sorry, but this is who I am. And here is it's like old school. Here are some cookies, mm-hmm. and then it starts with that. And then it's very much, hey, we're having some people over. Do you want to come over? And part of um, being great neighbors too is also the art of receiving. Mm-hmm. So you become needy, and giving the other person the power to help you. It's easier for us to say whatever you need. If you need if you if you run out of sugar, come over. No, it takes a lot more courage to say, "Hey, I ran out of sugar. Can you help me?" And there's a connection that happens when that other person is able to provide for you. So those were the things we were doing back in the early days and it truly was transformative. Hmm. Yeah. Yemi Mabalade is mayor of Colorado Springs. He's speaking with my colleague, Rachel Estabrook. The final part of their conversation, when we come back, Rachel asks about his faith and his future. In Colorado Springs, I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from KRCC. 
When it comes to elections, an off year does not mean Colorado voters get to take the year off. Ballots for the fall election are out, and not only do they have lots of local races and measures, but also two statewide questions lawmakers want you to answer. One about property taxes and Tabor refunds, the other about tobacco taxes and universal preschool. Find out more and about how to vote in general with our guide at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, live in Colorado Springs. Now, the final part of our interview with the mayor here, Yemi Mobilade. He spoke with producer Rachel Estabrook about the life experiences that shaped him and especially his approach to leadership. So back in the early 2000s, when you graduated college, Mm -hmm. what did you think you'd be doing 20 years ago? (laughs) Not this. Not even close. Um, Of course, my alma mater is proud of me. And, and that's Bethel. That's right. Bethel. And they invited me to be the commencement speaker next year. But, uh, yeah, if you had asked me would I be mayor, then I was like, you, yeah, you're on drugs. So, but what I was committed to doing was just making a difference. And when you're committed to making a difference and leaving the world better than you found it, that path can take you in all kinds of directions that you weren't intending. The thing is that when you know your why... Is it the most two the two most significant days of one's life is the day you were born and the day you know you you know why you were born. When you know your why, you can do any what. Part of the what for me today is recognizing that politics needs to be disrupted. We need good leadership, we need sound leadership, we need objective leadership, we need inclusive leadership, we need to move past um, just the political divide and begin to put truly our community ahead of those um you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a message that you have repeated right. throughout your campaign as well. Right. So you studied business in college and then eventually... Studied just, business and computers. And computers. I okay. know. It's... That seems like a practical choice. It, it, was, very, it was very African and immigrant-minded. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to make a living. So I came into the country... To study business, um, it was more computer science at the time. And then um, imagine me, a programmer. I think. Thank you for laughing. Yes. So I, the story is, I, I did my internship. My that was your uh, <laughs> staffer. Here yes, my uh, my uh, the head of my communications here at the city. I did my uh, computer internship, and I'm in my cubicle. I'm surrounded by all these programmers, and that was the moment I realized. Mm, what am I doing? Yeah, this not, so I graduated with it, but I didn't do anything with it. <laughs> okay, so eventually you decided to go to divinity school. Yeah. Was, I, that, was that part of your journey of finding your why? Is that why you wanted completely. to do that? Completely. Well, I would say that I, 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 first I had my master's in business. Okay. Yeah, and management and leadership. I'm obsessed with leadership. And then going to seminary, that journey was to learn about the why behind my faith. I don't know if you've heard the phrase that seminary cemetery. Yeah, that's a no. phrase that happens because they say sometimes it's a place where people's faith goes to die. Because you begin to learn about all the intellectual and the academic stuff behind the faith. And it's not always great. It's not always pretty. Because sometimes you're learning about the dark side of religion. And that can be discouraging for many people. This thing that I've held so sacred is actually not great. And then, what do you mean by the dark side? Oh, when you look at the history of the church, you know what I'm talking about. And even today, you know, the church doesn't always have a great name. And 
You know, we're not always, we're, sometimes it's, we're known for you know, who we're against as opposed to what we're for. We're boycotting, where sometimes religion can feel like it's, it's, uh, it promotes hate. And when you, when you begin to study church history, you begin to see, learn. You talk some, about that in Divinity School. Yeah, you, you learn more about that. But for me, it, it was different. Maybe it was the school I went to. Or maybe it's what I chose to study, but it became transformative, it, and it, be, it clicked in terms of I began to know what I always ask people: What is your faith for? It's for something. It's for good, and for me, it really helped. Okay, and did yeah. you come to Colorado specifically for the church? Yes. So yeah, I was um, I was almost thirty. I went through a faith crisis, relationship crisis, health issue, um, Crohn's disease. I'm blessed with three autoimmune diseases. I actually embrace it. I'm weird, I know. I, I embrace pain as part of the journey. It keeps us humble, keeps us grounded as leaders, and I'm, I have the ability to empathize with people better. Pain, that's what pain has given me, whether it's emotional pain, whether it's a physical pain, whether it's the pain of my wife and I adopting our oldest son. All those pain allow me, give me the ability to connect with people even more, and I don't want to lose that. Hmm. Yeah. So, okay, I lost the connection. How does the pain relate to how you got to Colorado? Oh, um, so yes, so I was in pain. I was almost 30. And that season of pain is what gave me the courage to do something I've always wanted to do. One, I've always wanted to move out west. I wanted to be by the mountains, outdoors. Two, I wanted to lead change. I didn't want to just complain about the state of the world and complain about the business I worked at, the church I was working for. So that journey allowed me to take that step of faith. And I moved to California, lived there for almost a year, and then I eventually moved to Colorado Springs. So the evangelical organization that you had founded a church with moved its headquarters out of Colorado Springs a right. few years ago. They said it was because the cost of living here had become too high. Yeah, they left Colorado Springs, then Ohio now. Right. Ohio and this now. is the Christian and Ministry Alliance. Yeah, Missionary Alliance. When they left, citing that high cost of living, did that give you any pause, seeing oh. that this spiritual organization that you were involved with had made a business decision to leave this city? It's still concerning. We're, we're a city of nonprofits. And when they cited that as their, because one of the VPs um, is a friend of mine, and when he cited that as the reason they left, they can't attract talent. They can't pay them enough to live in this city. And this was before I became a candidate. It's why it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about addressing our affordability issues and our housing issues, because the, the impact is great. And so I fear we might see more of that. I hope that's not the case. We still have a chance. We still have a chance to get ahead of it, to remedy this problem, but we need to pay attention to the reason why the CMA left Colorado Springs. Not because they wanted to leave. It's because of the high cost of living. And if you were still in Indiana right now, do you think you could seriously consider coming to Colorado Springs? Like, has enough changed? Oh, that's a good question because I, the decisions that brought me here are probably different than most people. I was taking a step of faith. I was, at the time, I was making $15,000. Wow. This is why my siblings and my parents look at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I have a healthy level of chutzpah where I make courageous decisions, even including running for office. So that's just part of my own story. Like I, I live within my means. I had saved enough money. So I would say 
my that part of my story is probably a little bit different, but I do know that is affecting some of, even at some of our economic development opportunities. Again, it's happening, but we're not. It's not. We're, we're not as bad as some um, other top fifty cities, and we're late bloomer. Colorado Springs is a late bloomer. I feel like we have an opportunity to learn from other cities um, that people are now leaving. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. You became a naturalized citizen in 2017. Yes, six years ago. When you were elected, Good Morning America, of all places, said you'd lived the American dream. Mm. You've talked in interviews, including with my colleagues at KRCC, about how the American dream is further out of reach for some people in Colorado Springs. So I'm curious how much you've reflected what a mayor specifically can do to turn that tide around and give more people that shot. It starts with a mayor who started out as a West African immigrant, became a citizen only six years ago, and now is a mayor of the 39th largest city. It starts with the face of the city and how that brings about hope. This story of Colorado Springs has become a global story. I was talking to a leader friend who was in um, Denver and got her Uber driver was, um, where is it, from Chad, from the country of Chad. And she had asked, do you know the, the mayor of Colorado Springs? He goes, oh, yeah, I know all about <laughs> him. We're following his story. And because of his story, I'm going to run for office in Denver. It's the number of African and immigrant leaders and cultural leaders that have reached out to me who are now inspired to do things that they thought they could never do. Some of that is our ability to increase access and make it easier. Some of that is what we've talked about, mental health, our emotional health, the ability to go, can I, is this, is this even possible? Um, the two young black African-American men in Colorado Springs that, that looked at me uh, after the win and said, the sky's the limit. And I said, that's, that's exactly true. And I was fortunate my parents were able to tell me that the sky's the limit. And for them to connect the dots and go, I, I can do it because you did, I think that opens um, equal amounts of opportunity. I'm, I'm now meeting Nigerians and Africans in our city and all over the state. I'm like, you guys are here? Like me? Didn't know you existed. I got an award from uh, the African Impact Group in Denver on October 1st, which is Nigerian Independence Day. The Nigerians in Colorado Springs are giving me an award. <laughs> I'm like, there's like a group? I'm just like, what? So it's to, to watch the excitement and inspiration and to see people now coming to visit Colorado Springs from Houston, Texas. I know because they all want to come to my office and they all want to meet me at the mayor's office, not in a cafe, not in my business, but we want to come to meet you in the mayor's office. That's a big deal. Do you see yourself holding statewide or national office to make it even bigger? Hell no. <laughs> Is that on the record here? <laughs> well, I said no yeah, to running for yeah. mayor, <laughs> so I probably shouldn't say no. I'm learning not to say no, partly because um, I still dislike politics. That hasn't changed. People say negative things about you. You just kind of have to learn. And, and I just don't know if this is what I want to keep doing. I, I entered this journey wanting to serve my community for a season and give back to the land and the city and the country that helped make me. But I never got into this journey to make it a career path. But I, I said no once, and I'm 
I'm like, if I, if I keep saying no, then it's going to happen. So, so no, but maybe. No. <laughs> <laughs> right now. <laughs> Mr. Mayor, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. Colorado Springs Mayor Yemi Mobilati with my colleague Rachel Esterbrook, who's back with us now. And Rachel, you talked about the emotional, spiritual, intellectual aspects of his immigration to the U.S., but not his legal path. Did he say anything about that? I'm so glad you asked. I ran out of time to talk to him about it. But it's a great question because, Ryan, it took him 21 years to get citizenship and he married a U.S. citizen. We think of that normally as a faster track. Right. I mean, you just think of all the challenges people face. He married a U.S. citizen. It still took him 21 years. I asked for his thoughts about the legal process to become a citizen in a follow-up email. And he said, quote, the immigration process is a long arduous and expensive journey. I was lucky to have people and employers who were willing to take a chance on me. He continued, understanding the hurdles faced by immigrants, including legal complexities, can help inform the right policies and community initiatives to support immigrants like me who have consistently contributed to the growth and development of the United States. Again, those are the words of Colorado Springs Mayor Yemi Mobilade, not my words. Thanks so much, Rachel. Yeah, you're welcome. From the Southern Colorado Public Media Center on Tejon Street, I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from KRCC and CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us.